A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets, of which we are um, two fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason's source for the secret. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. <laughs> was he, was he, um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source for the Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Good afternoon, Gary. Oh, hello, sir. <laughs> Listen, I've got this. So if I told you an idea for a film script and it went that this guitarist had this extraordinarily brilliant guitar, Gibson, Les Paul, and it was very famous. And then... There was it was on a plane that crashed on takeoff, completely blew up, and no one could find anything in the wreckage. And then thirty-two years later, he found the guitar. Do you think that, that would be a good movie, wouldn't it? That would be a good movie. It would be a series. It's a Netflix. It's a ten-parter, frankly. It, and the, it is. And the, and, the, and uh, I believe the guitarist, the guitar, went on to become named the Phoenix, which it literally is. It did. It's crazy. <laughs> and, uh, and also, also because the guitar in question, I know, is um, was always a big deal to me. Actually, I'm probably going to mention it because it's the first. Because I, I, when Frampton Comes Alive came out, oh shit, I've given the name away. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's all right. The, I think he's on the he's on the front page of this. Yeah, um, it's the first Les Paul I ever saw with three pickups. And I'm just thinking, wow, three right. pickups. But yeah. Jimmy Page had one, didn't he? He had a black beauty with three pickups at one point well townsend played three pickup les pauls as well sometimes but uh, yeah i'd never seen one. and they used to used to see a lot of them a lot of the old uh, acts from the 50s actually had uh, three pickup ones but they didn't seem to be a thing we're getting too techie now aren't we we need to pull out well we'll have to ask the man himself we will have to yeah. ask the man himself, but well, i most of the point i hate you knowing anything about the who that <laughs> i don't i hate that okay welcome to the rock on tours Okay, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. That's it's get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Okay, we're on now, though. It's all going good. Peter, this is Gary. I know you were meant to be on tour in, in England, weren't you? Britain, uh, this this horrible time when everyone's had to cancel. Um, and, and obviously it was meant to be your final tour. How, how's things been for you? Well, um, that, was, that was obviously not thrilling, um, but I can't complain because of, obviously... Uh, Everybody else and what we're all we're all in the same boat basically, except we're in a much bigger boat here in America, um, yeah. <laughs> with a big hole in it. And um, yeah, so um, yeah, it was. Um, I think the the thing that uh, upset us most was that we all left all the British and European dates in our calendars so that every day, you know, you wake up and it comes, bing, this is what you're doing today. Oh, so, yes, yes, we will. <laughs> oh, God. So when, when the Albert Hall came up, we all called each other and moped because we were supposed to be, obviously we were supposed to be, uh, I've never played the Albert Hall myself, so it was, it was going to be a big deal. I really hope we can do it again um, or reschedule it. But, um, you know, well, we have we have exactly the same story because Guy and I play with Nick Mason and we were meant to be doing the Albert Hall yeah. as well, oh. uh, which, which has got moved till next year. 
So, I mean, none of us know. How are you feeling? How, how, how are you feeling, though? Do you, are you feeling okay? Yes, I'm doing okay. It's uh, the IBM inclusion body myositis, which is what I have, um, is a very slow-moving disease with me. Uh, I'm, I'm lucky. But it is starting to uh, affect my hands a little bit. Um, but I'm still, I think I play with adrenaline, not with my fingers. So I think it's okay. Um, no. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm doing all sorts of different therapies and everything to try and slow this stuff down. There isn't, um, there isn't a cure yet. There's not a pill. But um, the, the great thing is that what we raised uh, from the American and Canada uh, finale tour was for me was a lot of money over three hundred thousand dollars from people just that each promoter donated a, a dollar for tick for each ticket and uh, uh so uh, and they each individually each promoter had to send them in it wasn't like live nation did it for you so they were all very very um uh good about doing that and uh so now we we because of that we're able to we're starting some new drug trials soon at johns hopkins so I'm, oh, I'm, I'm well done you i'm in business with them basically on that I'm, I'm hoping you 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 can get back in action obviously i mean your guitar playing growing up as a kid i think the first time i ever heard you although i was probably not fully aware of you was was on rocking the film or the, the yeah, Humble Pie record. Humble, yeah and you had these jazz chops you know <sighs> this kind of strange modal style that you played in which was really unlike everyone else in the business I mean, what was the inspiration for you? Well, it, it was really uh, when I was in the herd and we were all like going gaga over Eric Slowhand at that point. Eric is God on every train overpass, you know, and uh, around London. And and um, it was obviously everyone was so seduced by Eric's playing because it's, it's incredible, especially uh, Blues Blake. Blues Breakers and then Cream. Oh, you know. Bino, yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, so the sound, the guitar, everything. Anyway, so I suddenly realized that everyone that I knew was uh, carrying a Bino and, um, look, <laughs> and, and looking awfully like um, Eric Clapton. And yeah. then they would get out this, you know, Les Paul and they'd sound like him. But it wasn't him, obviously. Um, and I thought, you know what? I could get drawn into this very easily with the just the blues, which I love, obviously, um, and and um, play play the blues myself. Um, but um, I just decided at that point, round about uh, the herd, and then going into humble pie to just listen to Wes Montgomery, Joe Pass. George Benson very early with with uh, wow. Jack McDuff. Oh, very cool. And of course, my my father. Um, and mother uh, during the war and pre-war, their their Beatles was was Django Reinhardt, you know, and the Hot Club de right. France. So when I finished playing my Shadows album in the living room when we got our first record player, <laughs> I, I would get that off, rush off to my room, you know, to to learn the licks and everything, and then I would hear this horrible music coming as my kids used to call it dad's listening to that silent movie music again you know so <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah exactly so um but the thing was that after i'd played the shadows record each time um and dad would say you're done i want to put on my django and and so i would get um i wouldn't get more than a few steps out the door and I'd hear this lick and I'd go, holy crap, what's that? This guy's good. Even though it's not a Stratocaster, it's <laughs> through a Vox amp, it's, uh, it, it, this guy's good. So in the end, it was a two album thing. Me and my dad would uh, bonded over, on, over the Hot Club de France with uh, Django and Stefan Grappelli. So that's been, Hank Marvin and Django have been my two favorites you know, from the word go, you know. So that's that's where it sort of all stemmed from. I was introduced to the jazz part and then just decided, you know, I was going to go full full in, you know. Yeah. But well, that's interesting because you came from a different place than, so it wasn't like the jazz rock thing that happened, what, that sort of about 70, wasn't it? Or six, when was Bitches Brew? So you, your, your jazz thing was much deeper rooted than that. Yes, it was more, uh, well, not traditional. It's all, it's not traditional jazz, but I mean, more early um, uh, playing before 
the fu- fusion came in, you know, and all that. Um, so yeah, no, it was it was it was earlier than that, and um, I listened to. I mean, the first band, um, pr- r- sort of semi-pro band that I joined before the herd. I mean, I remember the the drummer gave me. He asked me if I joined the band. I said, "Well, I'm still at school." He said, "So I can only do Fridays and Saturdays." And uh, so, <laughs> so, uh, so he, he said, "Well, look, come over. I got this this bunch of albums, and it was Otis Blue, Roland Kirk, Mose Allison, um, Miles Davis, The Rolling Stones. You know, it just went on and on through every genre. So, and he said, "Have that down by Tuesday." I said, "Okay." Um, <laughs> so, so it was a, it, it was, um, it was a forced, um, but I enjoyed every moment of it g- going in and, and, and dissecting everything. And, but I love the period at that time, you know, the mythology surrounding people actually owning vinyl that someone, you know, people would all travel. Isn't there a story where, so, you know, one of the Beatles gets somewhere, goes somewhere far away and meets Keith Richards and Mick Jagger just to listen to some record that's just been imported. It, exactly. Rarities, weren't they? Yeah. And writing down catalog numbers, wasn't it? Yeah. Everything was about catalog numbers. <laughs> I remember when, when Humble Pie formed and, I believe uh, either Mick or Keith had, t- had uh, told Steve Merritt about the Grigory album, Dr. John's album. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, obviously that, that was to become a, a big thing for us because we did Gilded Splinters on the live album. Yeah, yeah. And um, so it was, it, yes, a lot of stuff because, you know, at that point, still radio wasn't that great. Um, you know, the BBC used to add like five songs a week or something. But I mean, there were other stations by then, but it, still, it was still, you know, word of mouth. Um, try this album, see what you think. Yeah, absolutely. But if, anyone, if anyone's wondering what I'm talking about when I'm talking about Peter's style of guitar soloing, I can only direct them to Shine On on the Rock On album, the Humble Pie album, because that solo you pull off in there is like, I mean, you know, the band starts off and you think, well, this is kind of Zeppelin style. And then you play a solo that's just from heaven it's out nowhere no one's doing that kind of stuff well thank you yeah i i think it's uh stone cold fever you're talking about stone cold fever thank you not shine on. yeah yeah shine on i don't think i did a solo on that one but anyway um no uh stone cold fever was um uh, was the realization when i uh I, i was tracking with the band in olympic with glenn johns and um and i we were taking a while to get it down. So I just took, I said, I can't play any more solos, you know, if we're not going to keep any of them. So I stopped and the three of them cut the track. Um, and then I just went out and played the solo, I believe, uh, afterwards. And uh, and when I came in and listened to it, I mean, everyone was, was sort of saying how they loved it and everything. And, and I, I just thought, I think I've just found me. You know that day when, one day, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. One day, I hope I have a style that I can recognize and others can recognize as being me, and that was the beginning. That session for Stone Cold Fever, I think, was the most important one for me. Oh, and and you did well. Sorry, you, you, you're working out of the box. That's really what's been so beautiful. Sorry, guy. No, no, that's fine. I'd never. No, I was going to say the interesting because because you were a few years because all this stuff that doesn't matter now when. When you're really young, like just a couple of years can be all the difference. Because wasn't, I mean, everyone you were working with was just a few years older than you, weren't they? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I was always the youngest um, in the band uh, until recently. <laughs> when I, you were 17 I, in the herd. You were 17 or something. Yeah. 18, I think. Yeah. Was well, it was, I joined the herd when I was 16. We became, uh, we had a hit when, when I was like 17 or 18. Yeah. And Humble Pie was wow. 19 when I joined Humble Pie. God, that's insane. How, what was that like? How did it feel? You know, what was the touring and everything like what, with, with Humble Pie? With Humble Pie? Um, yeah. Well, that was the most exciting band, the best band I've ever been in. Um, because, uh, first of all, I, I'd, I'd seen the small faces on Ready, Steady, Go when they first came out and did What You're Gonna Do About It live. And uh, I just remember that Gretsch solo with the whammy bar with Steve and then that voice. And I just 
my jaw yeah, yeah. dropped and I just, I just said to myself, oh God, I'd love to play guitar with him, you know. And, um, and I was probably just starting to be in the herd at that point, you know. So, um, and then of course, when we actually, uh, uh, Steve and Ronnie Lane uh, called up Andrew Bound from the, the herd and said, look, we've heard you're having a few problems with management and ripoffs and all this money. And uh, we've been through that. Have we been through that? And uh, we'd like to, we're with uh, Andrew Oldham and Immediate now. Would you like to come and talk with us? So we went down to Marlow, which is where they were living down the M4. And um, uh, they, they told us all about Andrew. They told us all about the stuff they'd been through and ripped off. And it was, you know, we're similarities. And um, so that's when virtually Andrew went back to London and I kind of stayed. And uh, I went down every weekend and Steve and I uh, really hit it off musically. And, you know, I found him a very exciting character, obviously. And, and this immense talent. Um, so... Um, but then didn't Ronnie call you, Ronnie Lane, call you and ask you to be, to go and join the Faces or something? Yes, it was because uh, Steve called me the night he left, the, the Small Faces, and he said, can I, because he was helping me put a band together at that point. We had Jerry Shirley um, drums and I was looking for bass and guitar, you know. And so um, Steve was helping me. And um, so he called me and said, look, I just left the small faces. Um, uh, can I join your band? And I said, are you sure you want to do that? Because I kind of thought that I was going to be joining the small faces. That's what it was, the way it was going. Because I'd just done a session with them for Johnny Halliday in, in Paris. And it was phenomenal, you know, the five of us, you know. I mean, it was my dream come true. I joined the small faces for a week. <laughs> Steve says can I join your band? And I said, oh my God. So I said, yeah. And then, you know, he said, I've got Greg Gridley, um, wants to jump ship with uh, Spooky Tooth. Oh, wow. I played with Greg, you know, Spooky Tooth a lot. And, and so I said, what a band. So, and then the, the following day, Steve called back with some names. We were all, to and he said, Humble Pie. I said, oh my God, that's it, you know. And uh, so then I get a call from Ronnie Lane, that the, he never told the others about this, because I've spoken to Kenny about this recently. He never told the others, um, but he said, well, Pete, would you, what do you think about taking Steve's place? I said, Ronnie, huh. I, I, and I loved Ronnie. I said, that could never work because that's, I don't have those kind of shoes to fit. I can't fill those shoes. And secondly, um, you know, Steve's left the, the band and your band and and we formed a band yesterday you know Amazing. and i said but the sad thing was i said ronnie we could have all been in the same band oh. you know? so that was that's what it but anyway it took two people to replace steve as i thought it would um at least yeah. um so True, you know that's Rod and, that's Rod how it's all started yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, Guy, you must have... I mean, that was one of the most important albums in my collection, Rockin' the Fillmore back in there. Rockin' the Fillmore, yeah, no, absolutely. And also, yeah, because obviously I've been... I've revisited it for the... And, and it's... So it's, Humble Pie are absolutely one of those bands that when you go back, you just go, my God, how good was that? I mean, it swung, oh. didn't it? It swung. I yeah, don't know many rock bands who could swing like that. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. it was... Uh... It was a special band. It, it was one that I and and of course later on, Steve and I did get back together and uh, write and record a few tracks. But then of course we we lost him in the in the, the accidental yeah. fire. What, what was he? You know? What was the inspiration for that band? Because I mean, obviously Jerry Shirley was an amazing drummer, could swing as well. But I mean, all was it was it Delta? You know, was it that sort of Memphis sound you were trying to get go for, or where did um, the influence? I, I think that. Um, we we were listening to a lot of the Bill Black combo. Um, oh, wow. And, yeah, and, and basically everything, you know, from Dr. John to, you yeah. know, um, uh, let's... Um, Leaving Trunk. Who's Who did that track? Um, uh, 
great blues artist. I, I'm terrible. I'm 70. I, I can't remember. Yeah, no, my brother and I love that album so much. I mean, we <laughs> love but the one line we all that always stuck with us when I was where we was we were touring with Spandau Ballet was we go home on Monday. But I want to tell you, we've really had a gas this time. It's really, really <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, is for all the, the blues and the swing of it, 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 it was actually what was incredible was that it was such a heavy sound. You know, I mean, yeah. the guitars were huge and everything, and and yet it was still very light on its feet with no keyboard. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, well, either Steve or I played keyboards when we needed it. Sometimes I would, you know, play organ, he'd play guitar, even live or vice versa. So, you know, but listen, but listen, but Peter, forget that album. You went on and made the biggest live album ever, and I just sort of to fill you in as a teenager um, listening when Frampton comes alive. Uh, came out and and it was such a massive hit everywhere i was kind of bemused because i didn't think i'd ever really focused on your pre frampton comes alive solo career um because that album was was just massive more massive than anything else wasn't it well it was it was like we were all discovering it was a very very important record for me peter i said i'd actually literally just started playing the bass and i wanted a fretless and a kimono <laughs> <laughs> after like i got Stan- that album stanley yeah, like sheldon Stanley, yeah. stanley yeah. sheldon and, and um uh also we were talking about this before it's the first time i'd ever seen a, a les paul with three pickups which I just thought oh. was the coolest thing ever, uh, because the big thing I remember at the time because when it, there was a lot of scrambling for like whoa whoa Peter Frampton who's where, where, where did Peter Frampton come from and then and then of course you know you had this amazing history and of course, oh, of course it's him from Humble Pie but it was there was this big thing of of how you'd been everyone's favourite support act for a couple of years which seemed a bit to me but it was like because um, it was so I mean that must have really taken you by surprise did it or uh, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, um, I think that, um, we knew because I just followed the template of, um, Humble Pie. Rock On was our, while I was with the band, was our best solo, uh, uh studio record. And, um, it, it, uh, did actually sell some copies, uh, probably the first of, of the Humble Pie albums to sell, uh, pretty well. And so we knew that the follow-up would be, if if it was good, would, would um, eclipse that. Um, and, uh, you know, management, um, record company said, look, uh, your live shows, are, are, you're drawing more people than you're selling records. Why don't we do a live album? So uh, we did a live album, and that was sort of the best of uh, everything we'd done so far. And um, so I... I uh, followed that template with my my album Frampton, which was the one before the live album, mm-hmm. was also it's the same kind of thing, fourth album, same as Humble Pie, and it um, it did actually sell you know a quarter of a million copies on its own. So I knew I'd made a dent, but um, and, and no one said anything. We just went uh huh, as if to say. It's the live album time, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. And so we did exactly the same thing. And of course, I remember um, going away in January just before it '76 uh, when it came out for because I knew we'd be touring all year. So I went away for a ten-day vacation down in the islands. And then before I went, we had uh, one show sold out at Cobo Hall in Detroit, which is about, I guess it's seven to 10, something like a thousand. And um, uh, when when I came back 10 days later, we had three shows or four shows sold out. And that's when I went, ooh, something's going on here. What's going on? Well, the album's zooming up the charts. That's what's happening. So um, yeah, and then of course it... I think part of the reason that you've made two of the greatest live albums ever, you've been on two of the greatest live albums ever, is maybe, Maybe it comes out of the fact that you were in bands where someone brought a song in and with within two or three run throughs of the song, you were recording it. It was going on the album. You never really had time to really flesh it out. And as you went on the road, the song got better and better and better. Exactly. Well, it's also I, I, players who can cut it. You know, it's as simple as that, isn't it? Players who yeah. can cut it live. Exactly. Uh, uh, and, but then, <clears throat> you know, Humble Pie went on to do, which is my favorite Humble Pie album, which I'm not on, um, which is Smoking. Um, and of course that had 
um, enormous hits on it for, for Humble Pie. Um, so, uh, but there, there's various bands, I think, that, you know, uh, I liken Humble Pie a little bit to The Who, not, not their style of music, but just the fact that you know that The Who makes great records, Humble Pie made great records, but if you really want to experience The Who or, or Humble Pie, you have to see them live. Yeah, yeah. And there's something extra that happens. I think for well, me... Live at Leeds is one of the great albums as well, isn't it? Of course. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think, I think the thing for me is when I walk uh, onto the stage, there's nobody else is going to say, well, I think you ought to try. Why don't you do... No, it's all down to you and the audience. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals, and other vital ingredients like gut friendly bacteria, antioxidants, and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health, and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. And it was a learning curve for me all along the way. Um, and I learned, you know, how I really love interacting with an audience. And I think it's, they always get more live from me than anywhere else, you know, so it's that. Yeah, but also, also I, we're talking about how quickly you used to write songs, but it's, didn't you didn't you write I Don't Need No Doctor in the sound check at Madison Square Gardens and then play it that night? Yes. I mean, that, <laughs> well, obviously, can you imagine that happening now, Guy? I mean, there's no, we have to go to each other's houses. But yeah, and... no, do you mind? We're trying to get keyboard levels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, the, the story, I'll make it brief, but the, the, the story is, obviously it's an Ashford and Simpson, Simpson song that they wrote that uh, Ray Charles cut first. And... Um, so um, anyway, it's our first time at, at Madison Square Garden. We're, we're supporting Grand Funk or someone like that. And uh, um, they actually gave us a sound check, which was unusual. So um, my amp's up, Jerry's drums are up, and uh, they're working on Greg's bass amp. And I just played with an empty Madison Square Garden. I played an open E chord and just stopped and just went, fuck, Wow. That's, that's a huge room, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, and then I, I just did another chord and a G and then an A, and then I looked round at Jerry and I just started playing, down, 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 and Jerry started, one, two, three, he was into it, so it was just as the intro to the song, that's what, how it starts, and then 
Steve, Greg joins in on bass, and then we're going over and over that. And then Steve is at the mixing console, just, you know, talking to the engineer out there. And I just see this diminutive figure running <laughs> from the, the soundboard <laughs> to the seat, jumped up on the stage, didn't even pick a guitar up. And he said, hold on the E. And so we held and he went, I don't need, that was it. That was it. Wow. And we, we arranged it that day, that sound check, and we did it that night. Okay. And fought over the publishing for the next 30 yes. years. <laughs> no, no, it's Ashford and Simpson. I'm going, to, okay. I'm going to ask a fellow fan, actually, of this question. Guy, what was the magic of Frampton Comes to Life? Because everyone had to have that album. I mean, it was... Yeah, you absolutely had to have it. It was... Uh, well, because it was... It, it managed to... Because... Uh, this was Radio One time, and so there was the world of rock, you know, like I said, I was very young. There's the world of rock music, which is something that existed in the music press and your mates and records. And then there was pop music, which was on the radio. And then very rarely there were think that things that would straddle that world. You know, yes. there was Bowie and Roxy and stuff yeah. that straddled those worlds. And Frampton Comes Alive did exactly that. You did ticked every single box. And there's this guy, there's an amazing Les Paul, and it's a proper and he plays these incredible solos. And that, you know, and it's I think that you you hit you hit the absolute sweet spot there of like all you know all yeah. the girls could, could dig it and it was it had it all and it had the talk box. Oh yes, yes. But I, for me, yes. I think I think also the world of a certain age, especially in America, but all went. That's me on the record. That's my euphoria. <laughs> That's my euphoria screaming back at him. You know, and it it was the most feel good thing. And and of course, it was fantastic because it wasn't like, oh, let's go and see him play live. It was like, I want to be in that record. And that's why people came to see you. A lot of people have actually come and said, I was in there, you know. Um, Woody Harrelson was there uh, <laughs> at the, the recording at Winterland. Oh, really? And, um, uh what what was the other guy um the comedian that did uh bbc one bbc two bbc one oh uh, uh, michael myers mike mike myers was there too because i i i got left out of wayne's world uh three i think i was i did a little shoot with him for that but um so i got to talk with the two of dana and uh, dana carvey and him and uh uh, oh, wow. Yeah, they were. He was there, you know, and it's it just blew my mind. Oh, but of course, while we're on the showbiz angle, you are part of that absolutely elite club who have been immortalised in The Simpsons. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought they had the wrong number when they called me up, actually, because <laughs> uh, nothing. They was... gave you a, but, but they gave you a flying pig, which was I thought was funny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I... Yeah. The wrong PS. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's... Well, actually, funnily enough, because I remember actually, Peter, on the day when we started the 94 Pink Floyd tour and we opened it, I think it was in Miami, and there was a thing about it on the news and you were interviewed about it. <laughs> and you were very nice. And we we're all say, looking at it in the dressing room going, well, that's really nice, but why? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and maybe that's it. It's PF. That must be. <laughs> yeah, there you go. No, they, they said they'd found it at, at um, that my crew had found it at a um, Pink Floyd yard sale. So that, that was where it was. That's where it had come from. How, how, so, did, you, uh, how did you, um, how did you cope with the, with the huge success and then the demands on having to write another record and all of that sort of stuff? Well, I think the, there were two phone calls I got. Um, I mentioned them in the book. As The first call I got was probably in April. Um, the album had come out in January, and we were number one and in Billboard and all the charts and uh, the album. And so my manager called me and said, are you sitting down? I said, yeah. He said, you're number one. I said, oh, wow, that's fantastic. I was so inspired by that, you know, because that in that's incredible, yeah. you know. And um, so then I don't know how much longer it was, a month or something uh, or two. And I got the second call. Um, we didn't speak much. Um, no. <laughs> fire. No. <laughs> I got, My agent called me at home. <laughs> uh, I got the second call and he goes, are you sitting down? I said, again. He said, yeah, sit down. He said, you've just surpassed tap, uh, Tapestry's Carol King's record. Wow. You've sold more albums you're the biggest selling album of all time in, in America. Well, anywhere. Oh. Um, oh. And that's when I got scared. Yeah. Um, because um, I, 
you know, I'm not as prolific a writer as as uh, I would like to be sometimes. And, uh, you know, it took me six years worth of material, if you think of yeah. Shine On from Humble Pie, then the cream of the crop from all the solo records, and uh, a Stones cover, and that was it, you know. But it took me six years to garner all that stuff, so all that good material. So I knew they would, like badgering me immediately you got to uh, you got to start writing for another album got to do another album and i'm thinking why would we want to do another album with the biggest selling album of all time why wouldn't and then i always think about the eagles you think they've had 50 studio albums out but they've had seven you know and the rest are compilations yeah, yeah. Mm. so they know they there's two reasons why those guys don't go near the studio till they're ready it's one they can't stand each other and secondly <laughs> yeah. and secondly they're not going to go near the studio until they've got like 10 hit songs their their quality control is super high and so um that's the way i've always felt so i i it was difficult at that point uh i felt i'd um lost before I start, I'd started with the next record, which shouldn't have been made for another three years at least. Well, it's funny you say that because I remember here, it's one of those things, I actually remember where I was. I was in a, in a shop on the Strand and um, because I remember hearing Sign Sealed Delivered, which is mm-hmm. a, a great, great version. But I remember my first thought was, but why has this guy put out a cover? You right. know, he's such a great writer. So, but that's, yeah. uh, that's obviously what was going on, yeah. Well, we, d- we were doing um, uh, Roadrunner and, and Sign Seal Delivered in the stage act as a, as a medley. And so that's why that we recorded right. that. In, f- in fact, Stevie Wonder came to the studio to do a h- harmonica solo on one of the tracks of I'm and You. And while he was there, I, I played him very nervously. I played him Sign Seal Delivered. And he was dancing around, you know, he loved it. And then, then he said, you know who wrote the lyrics to that with me? I said, no. He said, my mum. <laughs> so oh, if, you, oh my God. If, if you look on the label, there's two. Uh, his, I forget what his last name is, but there's two of them. And it's him and his mum. Mrs. Wonder. And, yeah, Mrs. Wonder. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. That's nice. I Wonder mum. Peter, I, I, I hold you in, in the pantheon of great guitar players, you know, with Clapton and Townsend. Oh, and thank Jay. you. It's no question. But I know you took some stick, really, for the sense of becoming a such a big pop star, which you did, uh, uh, and right. the girls suddenly screaming. You know what I have to say? I think this business can be the still, to this day, one of the most sexist business uh, because it, it there's somehow there's this, this kind of group of guys who think if an artist is followed by women or liked by women, then somehow they're not as worthy as artists who are followed only by men. I, I mean, that uh, has to be sexist, right? I mean, uh, yes, I, I, I think it's there's even more to it than that because it works for women as well. Um, if they're too good looking, they can't be a good actress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. It, you know, but uh, Nicole Kid- Kidman um, and Michelle Pfeiffer have sort of put that to rest now. So you were too um, good That was one of your problems. <laughs> yeah, I, unfortunately, yeah, I, yeah. You still I, are, Peter, obviously. Well, uh, Pete Townsend said, very recently to me, you know, sometimes people's beauty can get in the way of the talent, you know, wow. and, and, it, and I said, so yeah, Pete, it works for, it? yeah, so Pete, yeah, yeah, oh, so, so, so you, you're still talking to Pete, are you? <laughs> I, I, yes, I am. Yes. Uh, well, no, I love Pete and, uh, um, yeah, there's a little story in the book about him, um, but it, we, it's... yes, we heard that. That's, <laughs> uh, that's you would go and tell the story. You would come you would on, yeah. Come on, on. Okay. Well, you, you, we were around the right time because this is when it's like the early eighties, and I'm nothing's happening for me. My career's dropped off the cliff, and um, uh, you know because because a a, 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 um, a pop star's career is eighteen months, a musician's career is a lifetime. You know, mm. so. Anyway, so um, so I'm, I'm, I've got nothing. I'm having to sell my house, you know, all that horrible stuff. And the phone rings. I'm in New York. And um, it's Pete. And I say, oh, man, this is great. Thank, how are you doing? Good. Well, I've got, this, um, I've got this idea, he says. 
I'm going to... Um, I'm leaving, I'm not going to play live with The Who anymore. You, you're you going to take my place. And I went, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, I've already been asked this one before. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, I'll use the same line. Uh, no, uh, that's a very large pair of shoes. People would kill me. Um, I said, no, I, I can't do that, Pete. And he said, well, look, just say, I'll be there. I just won't be on stage. So I said, well, okay. And, and I've got nothing going on. Uh, and I'm thinking, this is a ridiculous idea. I get off the phone and I go, how ridiculous is it? <laughs> you know, because I had nothing going what on. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, a uh, couple of days. He said, I'll, I'll, I said, that's right. Have you spoken to Roger and... And John about this, he said, uh, not yet. I said, ah, I think, you <laughs> I think you ought to go and talk with them first. And then, you know, could you call me back? Because, I, I, you know, it's a lovely thought. I'm honored, but I don't think it's a great idea. So a um, couple of days goes by, nothing. A week goes by. Two weeks goes by. Three weeks goes by. My wife, who can't stand me anymore, says... For Christ's sake, call him up. So, <laughs> so I, I find him in a studio somewhere in London. And he said, oh, hello, Pete. That's all he got out. And the rest was me ranting, you know, um, uh, basically saying, you know, I've got nothing going on. And you asked me to replace you in the who, then you don't call me back. You know, so it was. And so, the, but the lovely, well, there's more than one end to the story, but, but. The, that the end of that period was that um, uh, we went to see um, Springsteen and we went backstage uh, Madison Square Garden in New York and uh, after that phone call and uh, so uh, we went backstage half time and um, there's Pete talking to Bruce so I just went and stood, just sidled up to him and stood next to Pete. I didn't say anything. And, of course, he's taller than me. And, and so he suddenly realized that someone is standing next to him. And I'm just looking at him, smiling, you know, looking up at him. And he just looked over at me, big smile on his face. And he just kissed me on the top of my head. <laughs> wow. As if to say, I'm sorry. You know, and yeah. we've spoken. Um, we've spoken since then, obviously, many times. But um, yeah, he he didn't mind it being in the book. I'm slightly wary of your time, Peter, but because but I I can't let you go without. You know, we have to ask you about playing with David Bowie and how your yeah. life kind of come full circle yes. from being a kid. Um, I mean, there's a wonderful clip on YouTube if no one has seen it. Before, yeah, 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 yeah. Of David Bowie and, and Peter Frampton looking for a beer in Madrid. <laughs> That's Barcelona, in isn't it? You're one Barcelona, one of... yeah. Madrid, Barcelona. And it, it's it, you two are just two kids from school. Yeah. On the, I mean, t tell tell us your Bowie stories. Well, I mean. You know, we went to school together. Um, well, your I dad met, was his art teacher, right? Yes, for th over amazing. three years. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and and David became a sort of family friend because of my dad and then me. So um, so we started, you know, jamming at school um, when I was probably thirteen and he was maybe fifteen or sixteen. I think he's a couple of years was a couple of years older than me. And um, and then obviously. We were good friends, but he went off, did his thing, and uh, David Bo David Jones and the Night Timers, and then David Bowie in the Lower Third, and all these things, and we'd be on the same show but different times, and and so we saw each other, and then uh, uh, it was the the mid '80s. I just got back on the road after nothing happening for a while, obviously, and and um, I just opened for Stevie Nicks. I'd put a record out called Premonition, uh, first one with Atlantic. And and uh, Dave calls up and says, hey, uh, how you doing? I said, great. Uh, he said, Doc, I just heard Premonition. I, your playing's great again. And uh, please, would you come and do some for me? I said, what? He said, I said, finally? We're, <laughs> we're going <laughs> to play together? He said, again? And he said, yeah, would you come and help me on Never Let Me Down, my new record? So I did that. While I was there... In Switzerland, um, he asked me, look, um, uh, I'm doing, and he showed me photos of a model of the glass spider stage 
And I thought, oh, my God, this is huge. And, um, and he said, would you join me on guitar? And I said, oh, wow, let me just think of, yes. <laughs> and um, so, um, yeah, and, and, but the beauty of it, I, I didn't realize what he was, what he was doing. He, he had seen along the way, we'd got together a couple of times during my big heyday period, and he'd seen what was going on, and he'd seen that I wasn't reinventing myself like I should, and that um, all hell had broken loose as far as my career hitting the skids. And so he gave me this gift of, he could have had any guitar player, you know, come and do that, but he chose me at that time, and we went round the world in stadiums, and then uh, when it was winter in arenas, um, literally a couple of times, and he reintroduced me as the guitar player to the world uh, with him, which was a very selfless thing, I thought, that he did for me. We've always been like, he's always, he was always like my older brother. And even later on after that, when I was doing my instrumental record, um, which that's the only album they gave me a Grammy for because I didn't sing. And um, so, um, and I needed a sax player and Dave's, a great sax player and but uh i knew he would know the 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 guy um of the moment that would be the great sax player to introduce on my record and he said oh you got to call courtney pine he's phenomenal and so i did and uh so dave was still uh, advising me along the way he was always a great you know, he is an he was an ideas man, obviously. So yeah, yeah. We, we all missed him. Oh, I mean, God. you played on stage with him as well, didn't you, guy? I did. Yeah. Well, his penultimate live performance, he came and did um, Arnold Lane and Comfortably Numb with it with David Gilmore at the album oh, at the album Hall. Funny. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. You know, I you know we just uh, you've you've got you've surpassed all of that stuff now, uh, PZ. But you've be, you've become. You become a national treasure now, haven't you? Really, <laughs> you know, we're all we're, people. Really, are you know flocking to see you, and it's uh, you're where you deserve you deserve to be. Oh. I feel now. Do, do you feel comfortable about? Apart from obviously what you're going through physically, yes, you must be happy with the way everything turned out in the end. I I think it's like you know, don't drink a wine before it's time. I I guess it's sunk in with a lot of people that dismissed me for sat in pants and a bare chest, you know, um, in the 70s. Um, that all just fades away. And I think what's left is the music and the playing. And that's what it's always been for me. Absolutely. But the thing is, what's great, Peter, as you said, because with the fullness of time, that, that as time sort of concertinas in, so now people look back and see that, you know, the Frampton comes alive, Peter. But then, of course, you had such a huge legacy before that. And it's fantastic. That's all kind of in focus now so well thank you very much honor to yeah. talk to I, I was watching i was watching you trading licks this afternoon i was watching you just it's just like a film of you just last year with eric clapton oh. on stage in dallas oh my god man i mean and i talk about trading licks you and carlos alomar doing gene genie on a glass spider tour i mean one day i'd love to be up there whether or not i would trade licks very well such a great honor I, I listen and i hope you get to come back to england soon and we all get to get over this thing and get our vaccines and 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 the whole world can start watching you play again exactly yeah. yes uh, well i from your lips i i really hope so because um you know i can't not say goodbye um, uh, to my my uh, home country. You know, there's just no way. So if I can do that, that will be phenomenal. And then if I can go further, I'll go to South America. I'll go to Australia. I'll go to. New I, I want to go and say goodbye to all the all the fans. You know, and uh, I just hope I have a couple of clocks working against me: the COVID clock, and then my IBM clock, which is slowing me down. Um, yeah. And so we just, I have to, uh, I've got to slow the IBM clock down so that we can speed the COVID clock up so we get that vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. let's, listen, Peter, if you ever get a call from me asking you to join Spandau Ballet, do, you know, don't get too excited, all right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, 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 I don't even call me. Yeah, no, but um, yeah, no, <laughs> I, if you do the craze number two, 
I'll be in that one. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Listen, you are, then can I can I just say something that that was a phenomenal movie. You were wonderful, and your brother. So, thank you, thank you so much, Peter. What a pleasure it has been talking to you. Oh, same here. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed. Really this. great. Yeah, really great, Peter. Fantastic. Thank you. That's your. You know, it's a, such a big part of 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 any one of our generation's rite of passage. So, thank you oh. for everything. Well, thank Absolutely. you, and uh, I I hope we can all you know get together in a, in a year or le- hopefully whatever. It's going to be at least a year, but I I, I and and catch up. That will be wonderful. Absolutely. All right. All the best, sir. All thank the very you. best to you, Peter. Oh, thanks so much. Ah, oh, wasn't that wonderful, Gary? Oh wow. I mean, what a nice man. I mean, really. And what, you know, just an experience it, it, it was to talk to him. He's, I felt kind of bad for him in many ways because he never got that sort of credit he deserved as being up with, with all those powerful, you know, ego guys, you know, back in the 70s. I know. I've got a nasty feeling that he might just have been a nice guy. Do you know what I mean? Right, <laughs> right. Kind of right, might be the right. problem. That's been our you know? problem, right, guy? That's been our problem. Yeah, it has been my problem. You not so much. Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, I mean, that was a dream, and uh, and um, you know. So anyway, we're moving. The temptation, on. though, when he when you said about um, not not wanting necessarily wanting to trade licks with him, and uh, this, you know, and of course, Gary Kemp. Who knew he could play guitar like that? Who um, knew? Who knew? <laughs> Which is my middle name. It is yes. I should point out to the listeners what that comes from is that every review from Nick Mason's source full of secrets, there's always a bit where they go, Gary Kemp, who knew he could play guitar like that? So uh, Gary has become quite annoyed with that. Well, no, I'm I'm, I'm happy. My mother knew. You love it. My mother knew. (laughs) Um, Yes. Anyway, listen, I look forward to seeing you uh, in... in, uh, Actually, we're doing another one of these very soon because we're cramming them in before Christmas. We're going to have a lot more. Go, yes. go to your uh, go to our channel go to our podcast on your favourite channel and, and subscribe to us and put a review if you can we are loving doing this and we don't want to stop well it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from her <laughs> very good <laughs>